Hello, and welcome to Unsheathed with your hosts, Kyle Gold and Cam Hirosaki. We hope that you enjoy the program. Please stick around afterwards. There'll be cake and blowjobs. Hi, welcome to Unsheathed episode number 84. I'm your Vulpine host, Kyle Gold. And I'm your Lutrine host, Cam Hirosaki. And uh, we're pleased to be back in our secret mountain bunker again. Mm-hmm. Um, we're podcasting by candlelight. We are. Not because we need to, but because we want to. Yes. It's more old-timey romantic that way. Aw. We are, we are both old-timey romanticists. I believe we are. Y- you more than me, but... <laughs> and uh, speaking of old-timey, I believe you have an announcement to make. Yes. So, a, a long time in the making, dating all the way back to October, November 2009, if you can remember that decade... Uh, yes, just the other night at 1.30 a.m. on Friday, June 10th, I finally finished my third draft of Summerhill. Woo! Yay! I, I am really happy. I, it's just having it done is such a weight off of my shoulders. I mean, it's not done done. I need to edit it and revise it and tweak it, but... Unlike the last time I wrote a full draft of this, I'm looking at this and going like, "Okay, like this is the story. This is how I like it. Now I just need to like sandpaper the edges." Yeah, adjust some of the joins, and I mean, the draft I had before this was only half as long. And I think the draft you had before that was only about half of that. Uh, less than half. My first draft was around sixteen thousand. My second draft was like around forty-five. I want to say. And this one's around Sounds ninety. Right. Yeah, yeah, this one's around ninety, which I mean, it's a that's a average length, normal like you know mass market novel. Yep, it's not like super long. It's well, it's actually almost only half the length of Isolation Play, but Isolation Play is really long. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, yeah, don't don't judge novels by my standards because I write them. I write them long. I don't judge anything of mine by your standards. That's good advice. Um, well, congratulations. We're all very happy here. We were delighted to hear the news and are looking forward to reading the new draft. And uh, one of my one of my readers has already read it. I'm not surprised, actually. I bet I know. Yeah, I bet you know who I it bet is. I know who it is. Yeah. But well, he said I had to read it once for pleasure, and now I'm going to go back and read it again to give you actual feedback. I'm like, right. that's cool. I mean, well, he's got nothing else to do in prison, so. <laughs> Uh, but no, it's very cool. We're uh, we're all very excited. I'm sure all our listeners will be excited to see it and figure out when exactly they'll be able to get their little paws on it. Yes, I am going to be talking to the publisher in like a week or so. Give a take a couple of days and try to hash that out. Uh, so I don't know yet, but I will let people know as soon as I know when a feasible release timeline will be. Although it's funny actually because I keep a I keep a blog for like my real world self and my different projects and I had mentioned like oh yeah like this w- this was a couple weeks ago I was like yeah I'm getting really close to finishing a novel and one of the furry publishers who knows me 
like was like talking to me. It's like, wow, like you're working on a thing for yourself and you're writing Summerhill. And I'm like, no, I'm just talking about Summerhill. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not writing two novels at once. I'm not going to do that. I could barely do Summerhill. I'm not going to do something on top of it. Ooh, that sounds sexy though. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think Summerhill's too toppy to, oh, I think he'd probably let himself be topped. I think probably. Yeah. He's, I, I was actually having a discussion with the person who had read it about Summerhill's sexual orientation. I don't, I, don't oh, know if he, I don't know if he has proclivities. Well, but which which will make sense when you know more about him, when you read about him. So Okay. Well, cool. Spoilers, sweetie. Uh, anything else on your plate? You Are you going to be doing signings at Anthrocon? Yes. I don't know when or where exactly, but I have two new releases coming out, or I'm in two new releases. I'm in both Heat 8... Uh, and I am in the Fortune Teller's poem, which are put out by Sofal Present for Planet, respectively. So I'm sure I'll be behind their tables at least once each over the course of Anthrocon weekend, uh, if not more than once, because you know, right? Yeah, you know, I just because because why not? Because why not? And you know, <laughs> you can't catch everyone in Anthrocon with just one one-hour block. Uh, right. Um, and I, I of course cannot catch anyone at Anthrocon because I will not be there this year. But I have. In addition, I'm actually in the same two publications you are, uh, The Fortune yeah. Teller's Poem from Fur Planet and Heat 8 from Sofa Wolf. And in addition, Fur Planet is going to be releasing the print version of Weasel Presents at Anthrocon, which I think, I can't remember if I mentioned it on the show, but I've seen a print copy, and it's very Weaselrific. It is Weaselrific. Very Weaselrific in certain places. <laughs> Helfer does spend a good portion of his own story without pants. I will say that. <laughs> um, yeah, Helfer. If you can't tell, Helfer is like my favorite Archaea character. He puts the wee in Weasel. <laughs> <laughs> Complete with the exclamation point. Oh, I broke Kit. Um, I, I, I had to be very careful in how I said that, too. I don't have... Um, I don't have really any other announcements. It's it feels like you know for a while there I was going to a, a yeah. furcon like every three weeks. We're, we're on summer vacation now, and uh, and it hasn't been yeah it's been a couple months now since we've been to one, and I'm kind of like yeah being behind a table. I kind of remember what that was like. You're not going to another one until Rocky Mountain. Rocky Mountain yes, that is. That is I will be at Comic Con though. Oh, that's right. You will be there. Which is not, strictly speaking, a furry con, and it's a little different vibe. But no, um, so I'll be at Comic Con end of June. I will be at Rocky Mountain mid-August. I'll be at Rain First end of September, and then uh, Midwest Fur Fest end of November. So we've got another stretch of three coming up. Whereas you know, Comic Con, Rain First, uh, RMFC. During oh, that, and Feral actually, I believe I will be at. We will see. Okay. I mean, um, I mean, I'll, I'll be at Feral. I'm already confirmed for that. So, which is cool. We'll have to see about. And um, while you're at uh, Comic Con, I will be at. Uh, the same weekend for uh, Rikoshi's birthday party, extravaganza for people who are too cool to go to Comic-Con. Or not cool enough. <laughs> or not cool enough. That. It's one of the two. Yeah. Hold on, I sent an impendent mind message from Kit over there, scrawling <laughs> frantically with his Sharpie. I see his... He says, follow me on Twitter for signing details at SDCC. Are you going to be the one doing that? Oh, me. Oh, follow me on Twitter for <laughs> signing details at San Diego Comic Con, or follow um, at uh, Sofa Wolf Press. I think it's Sofa Wolf Press, or is it just Sofa Wolf? It is Sofa Wolf Press. It's Sofa Wolf Press. Yes. So uh, follow me, Kyle Gold, on Twitter, or follow Sofa Wolf Press. 
Uh, I will not be there for the whole convention, but I will definitely be there for some of it. So, okay. um, figure out when uh, to figure out when I'm there. Uh, follow me, and we'll we'll try to get so forth to Twitter also. And you should be following both of us anyway. All right? There's a whole we could do like a whole show on all the people you should be following if you listen to our show and enjoy it. So. The three of us, Sofal, Fur Planet, yeah. Cat Valenti, yes. <laughs> Foosball. Um, okay, well, maybe not a whole show. No. I have some uh, ebook stuff kind of brewing, but it's not finished yet, so I guess I'll talk about it next week. But those uh, Anthrocon announcements, we've been talking about them on Furfinity and on LiveJournal and Twitter and whatnot, so um, you guys should all be aware of what's going on. I've been thinking about possibly doing like an ebook anthology over the summer, but I wasn't going to stop to do anything until I was done with Summerhill. So now that I'm mostly done, I'll start thinking about it some more. But cool. Shall we get some questions? Sure. Do you want me to start or you? Oh, uh, why don't you start? Okay. First email is from Candrel. Dear Sheathers, I pride myself on being an observant fox. My ears are keen even after years of Scandinavian death metal, and my eyes are sharp as long as I have my trusty spectacles. It wouldn't be a boast to state that I can recognize a wolf by smell at 40 paces. I'm kind of like vaguely turned on now. Yet with all my <laughs> sensory acuity, I must admit I've never tasted the color blue nor seen a mournful chord. That is to say, I find myself baffled by the literary use of synesthesia. I know it can be used effectively. I've caught it on second and third read-throughs of some of my favorite books when I realize that the stated sense and input are mismatched to clever result. The problem is that I can never get it to work for my own stories. How do you find synesthesia as best used, and how do you hide it so that something as jarring as using the wrong sense flows naturally? From Candrel, P.S. It was great catching you guys in person, which shows how long ago this letter was written. Your live show is perhaps one of your best to date. I think he means the That's live the one FC at one. FC, yeah. not the San Jose one, which is even longer ago. While I don't or, get over um, to the U.S. often, I hope to catch you both again should your next trip include another convention. Well, when we hope you show up. Yep. That was fun. Um, actually, uh, one of the books that I've got coming out for RMFC, which we kind of sort of announced when uh, Brer was on the show, yes, has a passage of synesthesia in it. Um, Which I think was written very well. Oh, thank you. It's not, I think, what he's talking about, because no. he's talking about sort of slipping it in as a way to make a different impression. Yeah, not somebody is under a sensory mismatch, right. like, you know, problem. Which, I, I will admit, I got the idea from Alfred Bester's um, The Star is My Destination, which I picked up in Seattle two years ago, and it's on my shelf, and I still haven't read it. It's an odd book. Yeah, but it's I hear it's one of those things that like you should read if you're into sci-fi, Yeah, which is why it's on my shelf. I just Actually, now that I'm between Dresden books, I should just try to read it. Always a lovely day somewhere, sir. When you finish it, you'll get that, and then you'll laugh. I was going to say, not boom today, boom tomorrow. <laughs> Always boom tomorrow. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so I used it just because I kind of wanted to play with it, and... Yeah. And see how what effect it would have, and I used it for the effect of having someone be completely disoriented, right? And actually experiencing things with the wrong senses, because they're, as you said, their wiring was screwed up. I don't believe I've used it very much in the more literary sense. the The only places would be something like you know you could 
you could taste the fear or taste the confusion, like tasting an emotion. Yeah. Or, um... I mean, smelling... I think smelling fear is just more of a direct literal thing, though. Right, right. Not so much a synesthesia thing. I can taste your anger. I was gonna say, not that I recommend. <laughs> Sorry, that was my was say, that was my fault. Not that not that I not that I at all recommend or advocate doing this, but um, while playing around with a certain illicit substance a couple of months ago, um, the best reaction I can get was at one point was I could hear Atari graphics, like Atari twenty six hundred video games, and I'm just like. And I was telling, I'm just like, I can like, I can hear the sound of these graphics in my ears, and people are like, okay, you should probably lie down now, which was was also true, but it was just sort of like, no, like, I, it made complete sense at the time, and I remember what it was like now that I'm in a complete lucid mindset, right. and I know what I meant. It's just really hard to, it's hard to put into words. And I think that's one thing that you have to recognize is that no matter what you're doing with this, it's going to be hard to put into words because it's not an actual normally relevant part of the human experience to experience things with cross-wired senses. Now, what what I would say is in sort of a less literal sense, um, you can use it to um, – like the, the, the idea of, of tasting something blue. I actually could say I've tasted something blue. Because blue is kind of an unusual enough mm-hmm. color with foodstuffs that we all have associations with it. Like, yeah, no offense, man, but blue otter pops have a very distinctive taste. Why, why would I be offended by that? And I think I'm just mildly turned on again. <laughs> <laughs> by the end of the episode, folks, it'll be a lot more than mild. Um, so, but the blue, the blue flavor, because it's such an artificial thing, mm-hmm. um, has a distinct taste to it. And you could say, wow, this kind of tastes blue. And it's a way to link, instead of having to say, well, this kind of tastes like the blue raspberry otter pop. It's yeah. a way to sort of link that because when you're eating it, it's you register the unusual visual sense, but then also the taste gets linked to it. So yeah. like the Atari graphics, um, my first thought was, well, Ataris have very distinctive noises too. Yeah, So you could hear sounds or you could see graphics yeah. but your brain would kind of link it to the sound yeah that and i'm sure that's made. part of it and by the way bonus points for any of the readers you can guess what i was on at the time uh, <laughs> I, i'll guess after the show you can I guess think after I, can, I think i can guess okay but. actually the whole thing with with the taste of blue is so distinct that george carlin actually has a whole bit on it does he he has a whole thing about don't eat blue food because it's just like blue is like nothing that's supposed to be food is blue, right? Right. And he's just like, and people, and he's like, he's like, think about it. He's like, nothing that naturally occurs that people eat is blue. And he's like, and people come to me. It's like, well, what about blueberries? He's like, blueberries are purple, <laughs> 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 which is true. They are more purple than blue. Well, but yeah. I'll also follow that up with. Uh, I actually got this uh, description from a friend of mine in college, but I think it's very accurate. Uh, Japanese melon soda tastes like green. Mm. Like if you've ever like it's that's the, it, it doesn't taste like melon. It certainly doesn't taste like that. <laughs> I mean, I'll just be honest and say it. But if you ever if like you have like a Japanese supermarket near you, uh, and if you can get a hold of like a thing of melon soda, it tastes like green. Like if, if the color green tasted like something, that's what I think it tastes like. Yeah, and I've had that too. With, yeah. Um, 
something can smell green. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in that sense, we we don't use it to mean it smells like the color green. We use it to mean it smells like green growing plants. Yeah, like 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 freshly cut grass. Like I associate that smell with green. Right. Yeah. Or exactly. algae. Exactly. Like the algae smell, like when you like first open a pool. I don't know if you've ever owned a pool. I don't know if I've had friends who had. Okay. Yeah, my parents had a pool, and like every summer when like you first open it, there's the tantalizing period where the pool is open, but you have to wait three or four days for the chlorine to kick in and kill yeah. everything that's grown in it over the last eight months. <laughs> and you have this very distinct algae smell when it first opens. Right, right. Yep. Not familiar with that, too. Yeah. Um, and you can also... I, I'm trying to think of other things, like... Um, Seeing red, the uh, the taste of um, those uh, fudgical pops. To me, those fudgical pops taste like summer. Yeah, I yes, I know exactly. Oh god, I haven't had one of those in probably over a decade. But I know I I bet I remember exactly what it tastes like. Kit Kit got a couple for us uh, last year. Oh yeah, we had them on the show. That's right. Oh, so I guess it hasn't been. So you have had them in a while. It's just I associate it so much with childhood that I didn't remember having right. one. Right. Well, actually, in episode eighty-three, when Kit and I were talking about the uh, late Harvest Sauvignon Blanc from Honig, where like it just it tastes like gold. Mm-hmm. Like that's what it tastes like. It tastes like you're drinking liquid gold. I've never drunk liquid gold, but I sort of have an impression that that's what this tastes like. <laughs> uh so I don't know if that helps. Yeah. I mean, I it's think fun to talk about. The, the best way, because when he says, like, he's not sure how to get it to work, and the best way I could say is, like, try to equate it to something in your own experience. If not something exactly, try to do something parallel to something you've experienced. Right, right. And actually, I do a lot of this in Summerhill, too, at a certain point in the story, where his senses get a bit confused. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I'm, I'm, I might actually share some of that at some point Ooh. as a teaser to people. That's, it, it, w- it would be fitting for our show because it's one of the sexier parts of the story. <laughs> but uh, do we want to move on to the next email now? Or? Sure. Okay. Hey, you know what? We were supposed to have our pitches ready for this show, weren't we? <laughs> wow, <laughs> neither of us remembered that. Actually, none of the three of us. <laughs> 85. Or, yeah, okay. Well, I was like... <laughs> I'll just do it off the cuff. Uh, no. I totally you can't, forgot. You can't always do that. It would be irresponsible of us to do it that way, too. Yes, it would. We want to provide good examples. Uh, dear Sheathers, I won't go into complicated preamble this time. I have a problem. That is what we're here to solve. My husband and I recently moved into a very small home. It was the right thing for us to do economically, and it may mean that years down the line we'll be able to retire early because we sacrificed now. This, however, has led to a problem. I don't focus well with noise. I don't mean just sound. I mean flashing lights, moving pictures, strange or unfamiliar scents, talking in the background, etc. Given our rather cramped living arrangements, I don't have a room all to myself anymore that I can make my little creative haven. This means that my writing is now competing directly with the noisiest of noisemakers, the TV. I can't seem to get away from it. Even when we compromise and I'm able to get relatively quiet periods of time, they're never long enough for me to truly sink into a story. When I'm in the zone for writing, I can go for a week or more spending every free moment just writing, rehashing, rereading, and reworking a story until I'm happy with it. Asking him to simply do without the TV for that amount of time would be unfair, and I'm not about to do so. The thing is, I know my productivity has fallen off. 
I'll sit for an hour or more with barely a few words written, while my attention keeps getting drawn over to the TV. The house is small enough that even when I'm not in the same room, I can still hear it. Wherever I go, I can't seem to reach that zen place I need to be. Do you two have any suggestions? I've got stories backed up and clogged in my head, all clamoring to come out. Candrel. This is one of the key areas where Kyle and I differ greatly in just the way that we write. <laughs> like, Kyle can watch TV, cook dinner, talk to Kit, and write at like, the same time, it seems. Kyle will actually and, go out of his way to create more distraction if there isn't enough around while I know. he's writing. And like, I, I see this happening, and I'm just like, how the hell does he do it? I mean, I've probably mentioned this in the show a bunch of times, but um, I almost never write at home. Whenever I write, like, seriously, it's like 99% of the time, I go out to do it. I will go to like a coffee shop or like an Asian tea shop. Those are my two big places, are coffee places and tea places. And I'll just go there. I will put on my headphones as sort of like sensory deprivation and that's where I do most of my writing. I'm very bad at writing at home uh, just because, you know, like my roommate will be watching TV or I'll be tempted to throw on the TV or there'll just be stuff happening. And I don't have the concentration to write when I'm doing that. A big part of it for the longest time was the internet. And it's like, I know I'm going to get distracted by the internet when I'm trying to write. The problem now is, of course, as, as we all know, it's 2011. If you go to a coffee shop, hey, look, the internet's there. It's free. Your computer probably connected to it automatically when you turned it on. And it's just like, ah, damn it. Yeah. And like, there will be times where like I'm, I have a, a netbook that actually has a switch on the front that will just turn off the network card. And there are some times where like, if I can tell that... Like, I've been on a wiki tangent for, like, a half hour. I'm just like, no, click. Like, turn off the internet completely. No, stop checking Twitter. Stop doing all of this. Like, I just need to make sure that, like, that's one of the distractions that I get out. And, I mean, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I do go out and I still end up distracted. But I know that if I stayed at home, I'd just be more distracted, too. Yeah, I'm part of my... Um, part of my... Right, this, this isn't going to help. So, but I'll get to the I'll get to the problem in a second. Um, I keep I, my mind sort of bounces around a lot anyway, so I need something for it to bounce over to and then come back. If I'm just staring at a story, I'll get I'll uh, I, I and I'm not feeling it. Yeah. I can force myself to write, but then I get more and more tired of what I'm writing and. And it's just it, it. I get as little done as if I'm also, you know, got the TV on in the background. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I've mentioned from a young age I have had the ability to tune out things, which is good when you're trying to write with the TV going on, but not so good when you're trying to pay attention to a boring lecture in college. <laughs> um, more than once in college, I would look up and realize that the notes that I had were from something the professor had was just erasing off the board and that I have no idea what the rest of the discussion had been about. Um, I once <laughs> missed a significant portion of a test because I did not have any notes about what the questions were covering. And I was just like, I had no idea we even talked about that. So mixed blessing. But Real quick, my trick to making sure that I was paying attention to lectures is that I came up with a very elaborate note-taking system that would force me to pay attention to what I was doing. 
where I had a black pen, a blue pen, and a pencil. And depending on what kind of point I was writing down, I needed to write in one of those three things. And that made sure that I wasn't I, just coasting. That is very admirable. I do not have the patience to do that. Oh, I don't anymore. <laughs> I lost that a long time ago. This is before I got into wine. Uh, <laughs> as if those are related. Um, uh, they might be. <laughs> so a couple, of thin, a couple of things I can suggest. Um, Cam kind of suggested one, which is if it's possible for you to get out of the house. Yeah. Um, odds are there's, know, not the, there's not a TV wherever you're going. I don't know if there's a coffee shop nearby or if you can... If uh, you mean, I, I, I kind of assume that everyone has a laptop these days. Yeah. But in you know, if you have a laptop, if it's portable, if the battery holds out, you can go outside. You can go to a place that has a plug. Yeah. Um, libraries, libraries would be a great place yeah. if you have a nearby one. They're still around. I'm sure they're thrilled whenever somebody walks in. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, if you have a little bit, I know you you said you moved for economic reasons, but if you have a little bit of money to toss around or perhaps put this on your Christmas list. Um, they make noise canceling headphones, which are actually quite good. Yeah. And you could, I know you don't want to listen to music, but you can buy really like white noise tapes or probably tapes. Yeah, where it's just stuff like, you know, like the beach or, you know, like birds chirping. Soundscapes, I think yeah. they're called. So you can, you can buy soundscapes or probably get them for free off the internet. Oh, I'm sure you can. Um, and just, you know, I, I said white noise because he said any kind of noise, and white noise just kind of cancels out everything around, and it would put you because your... there's nothing in it to draw attention, right? I and mean, that's what makes it white noise by definition, I guess. So, I would say get you know a pair of noise canceling headphones. A good pair goes for a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, I could say like yeah, anywhere from like one fifty to three hundred. Yeah, I've seen the the real high end ones. They're, I mean, they're they're not cheap, but. I mean, but they they do what they say. I mean, they certainly do put you in this state where, yeah, you're, the outside world is, like, I would never walk down the street wearing headphones like this because, like, you would get hit by a car. Right. Like, you would have no idea that anything's coming towards you. Now, Kit and I have gotten bumped up to first class on occasion, and they give you these little portable DVD, uh, or actually, actually, they're portable DVRs now with noise-canceling headphones. And it's funny with the headphones when you flip the switch, just hearing everything else disappear, and it's it's crazy. And I'm like, I can't wait till I'm independently wealthy. How does it do that? I'll have that in every room in my house. So um, that's I'll just be me. That's kind of what I would me, suggest. Me, a bottle of lube and Chester in my mind. Sorry. Um, anything else you can suggest for that? Uh, let's see. Things that work for me. I know that the subject of listening to music when you write is very much varying by person to person. Uh, I, for one, like to just have it on. Yeah, uh, It helps if it's something that I know really well, and so I'm not necessarily paying too close attention to it. Um, like, things I can space out to. Like, Kyle, I know you said that you can't do musicals because your brain starts following the story of the musical instead of yeah. the, just trying to get well, it out. And there's certain ones that I can do. Um, but they have to be, they have to have gone so far like Les Miserables I can do because I've listened to that a hundred times. Yeah. And so I don't even process the story anymore. Um, and that's the same thing with the TV. I can't write while I'm watching something I haven't seen before and I want to pay attention to, but if I throw on one of my sitcom DVDs and I've seen the episodes a million times, then when I'm stuck in the story, I can kind of switch over and be like, 
okay, I'm entertained and I know what's happening and haha, that's funny. And then just go back to the story. See, and I was thinking like, would that work for me? And I'm like, what have I seen a million times? Like, oh yeah, like I can throw on Star Wars, but I guarantee you that if Star Wars is on TV within like 10 minutes, I would just be watching Star Wars. You could throw on the prequels. <sighs> no, then I just want to leave the house, which would accomplish <laughs> the goal of making me write more. <laughs> So, anyway, hopefully one of those suggestions God damn works. it, Hayden Christensen! Sorry. Now, now. Plinkett said, don't blame Hayden Christensen. No. He is not the, He is not person one to blame. It, it's kind of like... We all know who the number one person to blame is. For it's kind of like, you know, Ewan McGregor didn't... Ewan McGregor's performance in those movies was not significantly better than Hayden Christensen's. It was It was better. No, yeah. I mean, like, the, but it wasn't significant. And we know Ewan McGregor's a good actor. Yeah, so. and... Oh my, like that's like when like the first thing that like bef- this was pre red letter media but one of my friends pointed out he goes the way you can tell that the problem with the prequels is with the way that they were just put together and directed he's like look at the phantom menace he's like you have ewan mcgregor and liam neeson like two people who are like by all accounts like good actors and who have demonstrably like, good actors? Demo- exactly, they have been good. Yeah, in they've been good things. in a lot of things. And like even Natalie Portman, I mean, she's been in things where she's been fantastic. But like, especially you and McGregor and Liam Neeson, because they're on screen together. Throughout all of the Phantom Menace, they never have any chemistry at all. Yeah, and it's just, and since the relationship between Obi Wan and Qui Gon is supposed to be so integral to the formation of this mythos, the fact that that doesn't come together at all is really damaging to the story as a whole. Sorry, I am really passionate about the fact that the prequels just do so much wrong, and they could have been fixed like with really easy tweaks. Like, well, and since one, I since I both big a, tweak get a different person to direct. Yeah, I know. But like, <laughs> as both a huge Star Wars fan. And a writer, I'm just like, oh my god, you could fix this so easily and make this amazing, and you didn't. <laughs> sorry. Redlettermedia.com. Redlettermedia.com. Just watch all three of them. They're totally worth it. Yes. Uh, is that good? Should we move on? Yeah, let's move on. Okay. Anytime we devolve into Star Wars yeah. rambling, we can probably move on to the next question. Yeah, that, that's a good red flag. All right, dear sheathers, seeing authors use specifically furry terminology in their stories is a personal pet peeve of mine. And ours. Yeah. Words like yif, mer, murray, and personal, and all manner of other bastardizations of furry terms just rub me the wrong way. Okay, I will break in here and just say yif and mer I dislike, but I appreciate that they fill a kind of niche that there are no other specific words for uh-huh personal forend person person yeah no anyway go on hey, go on letter writer this even extends to many new terms that authors inject into their stories that just seem slapdash and out of place in an otherwise well-imagined original world but on that same note, I can think of quite a few situations where good authors have created terms with such vivid significance within their world that they even wander over to the common parlance. Special, from Duanda's Dream of Electric Sheep, Frack, from Battlestar Galactica, and even Muggle, from She Whose Books Must Not Be Named, are just so catchy that they've transcended their original source. Not sure why. I don't know if Muggle's transcended its original source. Usually, I mean, people know it. Well, yeah. And you've also got, I mean, if you wanted to 
do more of those, you can go to um, Tolkien. Tolkien coined a ton of phrases that oh, are now yeah. all common parlance. He changed the plural of dwarfs. Oh, did he? Yeah. Interesting. The The correct English plural of dwarfs was dwarfs, and he changed it to dwarves, which is what we now use. I know that a lot of my dictionaries don't recognize elven as a word. Mm-hmm. Like, they they do elfin, E-L-F-I-N, but that just sounds so pixie-ish and weird. Yeah. It sounds really twee. And uh, Yes, it does. Yeah. And a, yeah. That's a great word, isn't it? Twee? Twee, yes. Sorry. <laughs> Actually, Actually, the way that I know... Somebody used that word, like, years and years ago, and I looked it up, and this caused great amusement with me and some friends, because... Um, under I think it was dictionary.com, one of the definitions for twee, one of its synonyms was niminipimini. <laughs> and I'm like, that's terrible. That doesn't explain anything. That, that word itself is very twee. Yes. <laughs> Actually, I have, I will say real quick, I have heard furries refer to non-furries as muggles. But, like, in a tongue-in-cheek way. Right, right. Like, which, it's slightly less demeaning than calling them mundanes, which, which also is, always bothered me. Which came from the science fiction fandom. Right. And but that's still also no less, kind of insulting. It's no less irritating. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, will, I will contribute, um, although I quite enjoyed the first two books of the um, His Dark Materials trilogy, Philip Pullman books, mm-hmm. Golden Compass and Subtle Knife. Um, one of the things that he did in there kind of irritated me at first i thought it was neat and then i thought upon reflection i think it was anyway they have electric lights Uh uh-huh but they don't call them electric lights they call them anbaric lights oh that's right because and his thing was it because they're generated you know the first electricity experiments were done using amber right and so they're all like oh it comes from amber so it's anbaric and i was like what's an interesting word but and all it does is kind of make it feel a little more old-timey, but I was confused for half the book trying to figure out what these anbaric lights were. And it didn't really matter in the long run, but it was just kind of like, I'm going to make up a word. Yeah, sort of like Neil Stevenson syndrome. But anyway, to finish the email, how can I use this to further my own ends? I'm writing a sci-fi story at the moment where adding to the regular lexicon of my characters seems to be the best option. But how can I make it come out sounding right instead of sounding trite? I can tell the difference in others' works, so there must be some artistry to those whose rules I understand instinctually, but not consciously. Thanks, as always, for your advice. Candrel, the bounteous bringer of Oh-Ho! Blowjob reference. <laughs> Thank you, Candrel. Um, I would say look for... I, I don't. If there were hard and fast rules, everyone would do it. Um, yeah. I would say look for the the thing... It's kind of to go back to what I was saying about Yif and Mur. Um Look for the thing that does not have a specific phrase. When yeah. you keep finding yourself using kind of a clunky, hyphenated adjective or noun to describe it, and then try to find something lyrical about it yeah. to, to use in its place. And I was going to say, the difference between things like yif and mer versus frack and muggle is that the latter is a like distinct in universe like within that universe that is common parlance mm-hmm. yif and mer is jargon it is fandom jargon but within within the yeah. fandom it is common jargon yes but even if not everybody on, agrees on the origins yeah but 
the difference is, like, in fr- like with Battlestar Galactica, like, frack is, like, that's just, that's their swear word. Right. I mean, which, you know, obviously it was invented to get around real-world censorship, but the way it's used within Battlestar Galactica makes it feel natural, where they throw frack around so much that when somebody says mother fracker, it's just like, yeah, that makes complete sense. And also, frack is kind of linguistically related to frag. Right. Which has a wartime meaning mm-hmm. um it's uh for people who don't know it's basically a friendly fire um but it has it has kind of it has a wartime meaning so it's related to a word that already has um that kind of meaning right um if you look at some of the other examples you used um muggle I'm trying to think I, I i know it's linguistically related to yeah. something but when you hear the word immediately you get a feeling yeah, like, Uggle, the the le is kind of a diminutive, right? And the, so the, it's the like double, something you're looking the double down consonant on. is sort of like a, it, it gives it like a sort of a whimsical sense, right? There's there's a there's a there's a term for this linguistically. It's called uh, psychomimesis, which is when the sound of a word makes you think something. Mm-hmm. And so you know, look for stuff like that. Look for a word that's similar. Yeah, and kick things around until you find something that sounds good to you. Chances yeah. are, if it sounds good to you and it sticks, you know, go with it. Yeah. And, like, another thing to do here is, and for Battlestar Galactica, so, like, the new Battlestar Galactica uses frack, which is, like, their thing. The old Battlestar Galactica had frack as well, but the old Battlestar Galactica, instead of years, they had yarns, and they would measure distance in centons. They also had another curse word, which was Felgercarb. None of these things recur in the new Battlestar Galactica, because at that point, it gets too jargony and too silly. Right. Like, frack is it's short, it's, like to the point it sounds enough like something that you know right like matches it is linguistically like, you know, related yeah. to other things exactly well. i mean right. like it's like you don't you don't need frack explained you know the fact is like oh like this happened like you know 200 yarns ago it's like well why don't you just say years <laughs> come on like kind of like if when someone when someone goes oh spit yeah you don't think that th- that's really what they're saying yeah unless it's butters <laughs> unless it's butters yes Ah, oh, hamburgers! Ah, oh, hamburgers! Uh, <laughs> oh, Butters is so awesome. He is. Um, I'm Don't ask think, me, homie. Like, uh, what's it? There's, there's so many of those for Jesus Christ. Like, yeah. Jiminy Christmas. Is Jeez one of my Louise was the big Jeez one. Up, that was that was a big one up right. in uh, New England, up in the Northeast. Yeah, I I, I heard Jeez Louise also. Um, Jiminy Christmas, I've heard, is more Midwestern. Okay, yeah, that, that, that I didn't. I, I I know it now, but that wasn't a thing from my childhood. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Pinocchio's conscience is named Jiminy Cricket. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course Homer's Jeebus. Jeebus. <laughs> which which has also caught on. Yeah, I mean, exactly. A ton of stuff from The Simpsons. Doe. Doe. Yeah. Has become. Uh, I, I, and meh. Yeah. <laughs> Doe might actually be in the dictionary. I think I saw something about it being added to the dictionary. Oh, I can tot- it's totally legit at this point. Um, like cromulent. Yes. <laughs> Which is ironic in addition to hysterical. Yes. Um, but, but Jeebus has become a thing now. Oh, yeah. People are like, oh, Jeebus. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember whether it was like, oh, did you, did you ever get H-E double hockey sticks? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
God, that sounds so old-fashioned, just saying it. That, to go to go back to our first letter, those words sound like childhood to me. Yeah, they do. They sound like childhood. Yes. Like the old Battlestar Galactica. Just like... Uh, Feels like childhood. Just like kids in California who know they're not supposed to say hell, so they say hecka. Well, that was hecka good. Hecka. Which cracks me up. It's so adorable. I started saying hella ironically for a while, and then like it got to the point where I was doing it unironically. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, who is uh, one of the... Well, I won't, we won't say her name on the, the podcast for fear of embarrassing her, but uh, an artist friend of ours from California was like... She was out in a different part of the country for the first time, and uh, she said, Now, I, I, I told myself, when I get off the plane, I am not going to sound like a Californian. I'm not going to say like use any California expressions. And she's like... The very first thing I said, someone said, how was your flight? And she was like, oh, it was all hella tight in there. It was awesome. <laughs> she was like, god damn it. Wow. Does it get more California than hella tight? It was hella tight. That is like super <laughs> Californian. <laughs> she was like, oh my god. Last email? Last email. All right. Dear Slick and Sly. Slick, so I was slick this, and Sly. Which also sounds like childhood. Yes. So I was reading this journal today from none other than the slippery co-host, Candace Mountain Hirosaki. I believe he means Kennesaw Mountain. Kennesaw Hirosaki. Mountain. Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Yeah. He, he, sort he of saved the game up. of baseball. And was racist. <laughs> well, who wasn't um, back then? And in it, he's blathering on about how his character has a want, a need, and a ghost. Now, being as literal as I am, I understood the first two, but thought that Summerhill suddenly contained apparitions. When I asked about it, he clarified, shut up, these are literary devices. <laughs> now, I've never heard of these before. Could you care to explain them, and also throw in as many sexual references as your deviously wonderful minds can come up with? I'm sure you'll have plenty of fodder. Yours as a follower, Fellatio, Furnace Hemingway, a.k.a. PJ Wolf. P.S. I think I'll keep the Furnace Hemingway bit. It seems kind of appropriate while I may or may not be right in the newest challenge you guys gave me. But for the purposes of this show, we're going to call you Candrel. Um, so, Candrel, the whole thing about a ghost. All right, is, just to clarify, Summerhill does not fuck any supernatural creatures in the story. <laughs> they're both super and natural, but not supernatural. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, so, um, briefly speaking, and the ghost is the... An event that occurred in the character's past that drives his motivations in the story. Yeah. Um, let's go back to Star Wars because it's a great storytelling example. Yeah. Luke's ghost in Star Wars. Yeah. Um, you know, he he is basically driven by the fact that, you know, he has heard that his father was this great war hero but, you know, has never known him and doesn't really know the truth about it. And then he, like, runs into Ben Kenobi, and he's like, oh, it's like, you knew my father? And, you know, Ben sort of plays coy with it, but he's just like, no, like, if this is, like, what my father did, I want to go out and do this with you. And, like, Ben Kenobi's like, no, stay home, don't get involved with this. And then, of course, you know, his whole Luke's family gets wiped out, and he's like, well, there's nothing for me here now. Spoilers. Spoilers. Aunt Brew and Uncle Owen end up at a barbecue on their own front lawn. (laughs) Or, I don't know if it's a lawn, if it's the desert. the main course. Yes. Um, Yeah, and it's the fact that his father, his uncle, or his his father's uncle has told him these stories about his father being an adventure pilot that seeks him, that drives him to seek adventure. Right. Yeah, and he wants to seek adventure, he wants to seek more about his father, but it's that that thing in his past, is the fact yeah. that his father was this adventuresome pilot. 
Um, we didn't fit he was, any he sexual was, references in there. I'm sorry. No, he was not a whiny little kid who asked Natalie Portman if she was an angel. Right. And that's part of the Fuck thing with you, Lucas. Yeah, part of well, yeah. And sorry. Anakin, Anakin doesn't really have a ghost. No, he doesn't. He's a slave, but that's kind of yeah. it's like nothing that happened. And they try to set up that his motivation is going to be you know the death of his mother and all that, but it's kind of telegraphed so obviously it's not anything we don't understand what motivates him and that's not even what sets him over the edge in the end right which again <laughs> fuck no, seriously <laughs> this is bad storytelling like, yeah, that's but a good I'm thing I'm trying to provide no, the yeah. counter no, here we go Luke Skywalker has a very distinct ghost and a need and a want Anakin Skywalker has a want right he only has one of those three like he wants to be this powerful Jedi until the third movie, in this case, he wants to save Padme. And that's really his big driving force in that. And, I mean, he has, he kind of has a need, but it's not, it's, it's not, not real It's clear. not spelled out very well. It's not, well, the need, the need often isn't spelled out. I mean, like, Luke's want and need are different. Right. Luke's want is to get off the planet B and, and have adventure. Yeah. And his need is to, uh, crap, I was doing this in one of the, one of my panels at FWA, actually. Oh, right. Um, his need is to understand, basically to understand the greater purposes. Because you get to the point in Star Wars, and it's a very understated point in the movie, actually. But you get to a point where he's about to go with the Rebel fleet to attack the Death Star. And Han Solo says, why are you throwing your life away on a suicide mission? Come, you're a good pilot, come with me. And basically, again, it's not spelled out, it's not emphasized, but what he's saying is, hey, Luke, come live a life of adventure, which you've already proven you can handle. You've got all the adventure you want, we'll fly around, we'll have great fun, it'll be terrific. It's what you've always wanted. He basically has given him, this is what you have always wanted. And Luke says, no, I've got to go on this mission, this is important. And that shows his growth, that he understands... And that was his need, was to understand the difference between just, you know, going out and having an adventure and doing something yeah. worthwhile that because, could benefit you know, others. At the beginning of episode four, he very much is this whiny, petulant child. And his father's like, or his uncle rather, is like, I need you to stay on the farm. And he's like, but no, I want to go do this. And he's like, look, I need you here. And that's right. more important. Like, like, you helping this family in this household is more important than you chasing your dreams. Right. And... Like you said, he's given he's given the opportunity to chase his dreams at the end of the movie, and he's like, "No, this is more important. I'm needed here." Right, and that's called mirroring. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so so there you go. And then you have, I mean, try to try to find that moment in any of the prequels. Like yeah. Anakin basically doesn't learn any lessons in the first movie. He just kind of sits in a ship and spins around until he blows up. He's not even the main character. Right. Um, But neither of the main characters learns a lesson either. No. Um, There really isn't a main character in that movie, which is part of the problem. (laughs) That's why it's the worst of the three prequels. (laughs) Although, I don't know, episode two gives it a run for money. I kind of think episode two is worse, but I I don't want to go watch them enough to back up that opinion. You know what? If you're going to rewatch them, rewatch them with riff tracks, because then you can at least laugh at them. Um, it was funny because I, I recently watched the Red Letter Media review of Episode Three, mm-hmm. and that was painfully enough like rewatching the movie. There were parts 
of the movie that he talked about that I'd completely forgotten. <laughs> I'd forgotten the whole subplot with General Grievous. Oh god, I love when he's making fun of it, where it's just like, and then there's like Admiral Bad Guy, and like whatever. It's like really General Grievous. Like that was the best you could come up with. Like fuck you, George Lucas. And he's a terrible character. He and is. honestly, I thought Count Dooku died at the end of the second movie. I no, forgot okay, that he was no, in no. there. Here's the big thing: you have Count Dooku serving a purpose in the role of the story. Basically, in the beginning of episode three, you kill off Count Dooku and introduce General Grievous and then basically have him serve the role of Palpatine's right-hand man. You already have Palpatine's right-hand man in the form of Count Dooku. The only reason they did that is like, well, let's get rid of Christopher Lee and replace him with this giant CGI robot badass that we can make look cool with special effects. When if you had just kept it Count Dooku the whole way through, you would have had continuity. And then, when Obi-Wan Kenobi Kenobi defeats Count Dooku at the end, it sets up this like big triumphant victory over it with the fact that when Count Dooku was mocking Obi-Wan Kenobi about following the Jedi ways in their big confrontation at the end of episode 2. Gah! Sorry, it's just like, it's such an obvious fix. And also... I am foaming at the mouth here. You, you, you also you also would have had Christopher Lee, who's a better actor than a CGI robot. Yes, exactly. And like you look at Christopher Lee in that like five minutes he's in the beginning of episode three, and like he just looks dead inside. Like, why am I here? Like, I'm I'm here to uh-huh. act against a green screen, do nothing, and then have Hayden Christensen cut my head off. Fuck you, George Lucas. You make you make me want to go watch the Lord of the Rings movies again. Yeah, where he's playing a character that is actually interesting. That has a character. Yes. With emotion and lines and is in front of a green screen the whole time. Okay. So Frodo. What's Frodo's ghost? Um, Frodo's ghost is um, Bilbo, actually. Yeah. Bilbo. Absolutely. It's very reason- similar to Luke Skywalker in that way, actually. Yeah. It's Bilbo's adventure, which is a, a real conflicted ghost because it's not something where Frodo has this whole, like... I want to go leave. He wants it, but he also recognizes how much trouble it caused Bilbo and how much people in the Shire talked about him after yeah. he's gone and how, oh, Bilbo, old crazy Bilbo now. And so he's kind of jealous, but at the same time, he likes his secure status yeah. in the Shire. It's so like the point where like Gandalf was like, come with me. He's like, wait, really? Like, yeah. are you sure? So like, loved- I'm not sure I want to do this. So he loves when Gandalf visits. Yeah. Because that's a little taste of adventure and it's safe and it's in his home. Yeah. But... Yeah, so there's that's yeah. That's so there we go. To, to to give another example and to stop talking about Star Wars. Oh my God! Like it is actually taking time. I'm still a little worked up. Like my pulse is up. Like my face is still flushed. Oh my God! You know we could just at some point probably do an entire episode just talking about the the six movies. We would need like two hours. We would. Need oh, we to- could do one episode, one for the first trilogy, and one for the prequels. And we could bring in. Oh, maybe a maybe do a panel. Oh, I'll suggest that. You know where what? are we both going to be? You know, what? I bet it. I bet Rainforest would do it. Rain. I was just Rain, Rainforest would totally let me be on a listen to Kamarasaki rant about the Star Wars prequels panel. Talk about. I mean, well, we should suggest it. Talk about story construction in the Star Wars movies. Oh, I would absolutely. You know how down I would be for that. Oh yeah. I mean, I've seen we'll see all of those movies so many times. Me. 
No, no. I would just uh, I would just follow his lead. S- similar to how the uh, director commentary on Cannibal the Musical is basically just Trey Parker and Matt Stone talking about the movie as they drink a bottle of scotch. I would want like two bottles of wine and me just ranting about like the Star Wars movies for until they kicked me out of the room. Basically, <laughs> we'd need to make it a late night adults only panel because I would be swearing up a storm at that point. Yeah, we'll see if we can make it happen. It sounds like fun. <sighs> or alternately, if we don't, get me in the hotel bar at Rainforest and say, Hey, Kei Hirasaki, here's a drink. Talk to me about the prequels, and I will entertain you for the next half hour. It's, it's better if you can give him like a jumping off point. So from just listening to this episode, you have several jumping off points. First of all, the uh, use of Count Dooku in episode three. Yeah. Um, the love story in episode two. <laughs> the relationship between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan in episode one. Or if you just want to hurt him, you can always just say, midichlorians. Ah! <laughs> ah! I knew you were going to pull out like a, a total like kidney punch with that last one. And I'm like, I'm like, What's he gonna do? Like, is he gonna like bring up like Jake Lloyd as like young Anakin, or is he gonna talk about the fact that pretty much all Natalie Portman does in the third movie is look out windows? No, you had to mention the goddamn midichlorians. <laughs> I thought you were my friend. You can also say shot reverse shot. That works. Oh, just, <laughs> that's but that's not story construction. That's no, bad film. That's bad filmmaking. Which is a whole other right, right. And we don't need to talk about that. No. Um, so, Kendall, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> um, and uh, hopefully that makes it all clear. Uh, we've got... Uh, we'll definitely have our pitches for next week. Yes. Thank because you. we'll work on them right now or something. I don't know. Um, and let's see. Follow me on Twitter to find out when I'm going to be at Comic-Con and also to hear the stupid things I say from time to time. Kyle Gold on Twitter, Kyle Gold on Live Journal, which is where I post most of my updates and thoughts and stories about crows hanging out outside my office window. Um, and Kyle on Fur Affinity, where I've been trying to copy my Live Journal posts of late and been more or less successful about it. And I am Cam Hirasaki on Twitter, Live Journal, FA, and So Furry. Uh, I recently posted a, another chapter of Summerhill, but I might have mentioned that last week. But if not, go check it out. It's there. Uh, and you can find out stuff where I'm going to be. Like, you know, I'm sure it, at Anthrocon I'll be tweeting when I'll be where for signings and meet and greets are, Hey, I'm in the bar. Come meet me. <laughs> and write us emails at unsheathedpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, on behalf of Kit and KM and myself... This is Kyle Gold wishing you good night and keep writing.